this morning? Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning? A few people right over here in the student section, they're really happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I'm wondering, is there people over in here? Is anyone over here excited to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Yep, okay. I prodded you, and so you came along. Thank you for being willing to do that. There we go, short guy. Now, before we get going this morning, uh, I want to give honor where honor is due. Uh, you all know that um, Pastor Kathy has been away. Uh, she's been on uh, vacation, maybe, if that's the word for it. Um, but here's what I want to say to all of you. is I want to say thank you to all of you for making time and making space for our senior pastor to go away and for her to be able to enjoy some much needed and obviously much deserved rest. So I want to say thank you to the house for being open to that and for making room and for making space for her. And I want to honor Pastor Kathy for being willing to go uh, because sometimes it's easier to stay on the wheel Stay on the hamster wheel to keep things going, but I want to say thank you to her for allowing the Lord to watch and care for her soul and for the Lord to help refill her tank. Uh, how many of you know that uh, if there's anybody has been through a rough year this year, our senior pastor has certainly been through a rough year, but Pastor Kathy, I'm not sure exactly where you are this morning, but at the gate this morning, we want to honor you and we want to say thank you for not dropping the reins, for not letting go of the steering wheel. And for six, seven months now, you have been in the grind. You've been hearing the voice of the Lord, and you've been trying to sort out a tremendous world that has been dumped in your lap. And we want to say thank you to you. And so, church, if you'll help me, I want us to stand on our feet today, and I want us to bless and honor our senior, past, our senior pastor today for following the voice of the Lord and for continuing to say yes. Pastor Kathy, we speak a blessing over you. We pray for you this morning. We say that you are enjoying the rest and the peace of God wherever you are this morning, that he's with you, he's rejuvenating you, that his voice will be crystal clear and that he's going to give you strength and boldness to follow what He tells you to do. You follow Him, and we commit to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. We love you, Pastor Kathy. Now, I'm coming in on the tail end of a preaching series here called Unshakable, and I, I want to say that I'm really humbled and honored uh, that I get to follow in the footsteps of my comrades who have gone before me. Uh, holy cow, these guys have cranked it out of the park. There is some great preachers that hang out here at the Gate Church. Amen? So Pastor Jay, Songo, Pastor Songo, Pastor David, those guys all did an incredible job, and I'm very humbled that I get to follow along behind them. And uh, there's one final group of people that I want to take time and give some honor to this morning. And... Um, <clears throat> They are a group of people who that they work in the shadows. They arrive early and they stay late. And when things go good, it's the preacher's fault. But when things go bad, it's their fault. And the group of people that I'm talking about this morning are our media team. 
And so listen, but wait, 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 wait. Don't waste it. You got to wait. You got to wait. I really want to impress upon you why you're clapping is that most of the time, by the time you roll out of the bed on Sunday morning and you go turn your coffee pot on, those guys have already had a cup and they are here at the church switching the lights on and checking connections and computers. And uh, listen, it's like NASA up there in the control room. They've got countdowns and stopwatches and radios and phones. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And these guys, they work all through the week finding problems, fixing problems so that we can come in here on Sunday morning. We just walk in, throw our hands up, and we listen to the worship team sing like angels. So with that in mind, I want to say thank you to those guys for being willing to work in the shadows so that we can worship God with all the sound and the lights on. Amen. I don't know about you, but I am great grateful for that. Thank you, media team, camera guys, sound guys, audio techs, visual techs, lighting guys. I can't see you, but I know you're looking at me up there. We love you guys, and we're grateful for all that you do for us. Okay, so now all that's done, we're going to read a scripture. Is that okay? All right, here we go. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 3. We know that this is Paul, obviously, writing his first letter to the Corinthians. He has been uh, for 15 chapters now, he has been keeping them on track. He's been addressing issues that are going on, doctrine issues that are going on in that church that he started. And so here in chapter 15, he is giving uh, the Corinthians his closing thoughts about things that are most important. So we can read together in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. Paul says this, For what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance. Now that's a fancy Greek way of saying, I gave you the most important thing. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Why does he say according to the scriptures two times in such a short short couple of sentences there. He's reminding us that all through the Old Testament there was prophecy and there was precedent for what was going to happen to the Messiah. And so for thousands of years we've been told stories, we've been given prophecies. Hey, God is going to send a Messiah who He's going to come and He's going to set the world right. He's going to put things in order. He's going to make things right. And Paul says that all that story that we have been told, God has fulfilled it when Jesus came and He died, He was put in the tomb, and after the third day He got up, God kept His Word. This is the most important thing. This is Paul's opening uh, thought, his opening salvo, if you will, as he finishes his final uh, chapter to the Corinthians here. And so, <clears throat> let's pray just briefly. Bow your heads with me. Lord, I ask that you help me to communicate clearly and accurately this morning. Lord, I put my trust in you and I put my hope in your word that it has power to affect us and to change us. Lord, I ask that you put me on like a coat. 
that you wear me this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to try to sit down. I'm supposed to be sitting down and staying calm, but I get really excited when I start talking about Jesus resurrected. So here's some things that we want to start off with this morning. Christ came to fulfill the story. He came to fulfill God's word and to keep God's promise. God said in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, when he addressed Adam and Eve after their sin and failure, and when he addressed the serpent, what did he say? I'm going to, you two, man and woman, you're going to be enemies with the serpent. Serpent, you're going to be their enemy. Serpent, you're going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but he will crush your head. And so from the very beginning, God had a plan. God had an idea in mind of what he was going to do to solve the problem of Adam and Eve's disobedience when they allowed sin and thereby death into the world. So all along, God has had a plan, and He has been working all through history to bring that plan to fulfillment. And so there's something interesting that we should consider this morning is that not only did God make the promise, but He did very particular things all through the Old Testament that were like signposts. They're like road signs saying, this is the way. Keep watching me. Keep following me. If you do what I say, I've got this thing under control. We're going somewhere, and it's somewhere good. God has taken us somewhere good this morning. He wants to take you somewhere good this morning. You want to know how I know that? Because He gave us something good. In fact, He gave us something perfect when He gave us His Son. You say, what are you talking about, man? Why is that so important? Because we had the law of Moses at one time. God's perfect law, if you will. He came down with His own finger and wrote it in the stone for us so that we wouldn't mess it up. And now let me ask you a question. If we had God's perfect law, do this, don't do that, then what did we need Jesus for? All we had to do was follow the rules, follow the laws, because laws don't give life. Here's something that the Old Testament thinkers and philosophers were very much aware of. The problem is not what to do and what not to do, because we can give you the perfect law, but here's what they found out is that human nature, our sin nature, is broken and cracked. It's compromised in its foundations, and you can have the perfect law of God, but we will fail every single time. And so here's what they became aware of. We've got the Ten Commandments in stone. We've got the tabernacle with the manifest presence of God on the inside. The high priest goes in once a year with a blood sacrifice and covers the sins of the entire nation. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I wish that that model was still around because one guy could go into the presence for us, put some blood on there, and we'd be good for a whole year. Then we could run around sinning and being heathen pagans and just doing whatever we liked. A few people laughed right here, but I wonder if there's not still a lot of Christians that go around today thinking and operating with the same mentality. That everything's going to be okay, I'm just going to keep doing what I want to do. And that somehow it's covered and somehow it will be okay. 
when in reality it won't. Because the problem is not do you do or do you not do. The problem is in you. The problem is in me. That's why we needed Jesus to come. Was to show us a better way. To show us God's way. And so the issue was we didn't need to know God's do's and don'ts. What we needed to know was God's nature. His character. Who He is at His core. Why does He do what He does? Why does He do things the way that He does them? Why is God so generous? Why is He so merciful? Why is He so compassionate? We needed to see that. We needed to hear it with our ears. We needed to touch it. That's why God... God gave us Jesus because he was God made manifest. He turned the law on its head and said, follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Is it okay if we have a little Jesus theology this morning? And so the day came where we know that Jesus was brutally crucified and he didn't deserve it. Mankind, our ideology, our worldview, didn't know what to do with someone who loved everybody and raised the dead, and so we killed him. What was happening? God was allowing our way of doing things to be put on full display so that for all the rest of history, if we ever wondered what we would do when we were left to our own devices, we could look back at what happened to Jesus. And I can look at the Sadducees and the Pharisees who conspired in back rooms to have him murdered. Or I can look back at Pontius Pilate who punked out and said, I wash my hands of this, y'all can kill him anyway. I can look back and say, that's what I will do when I am left to my own devices. I can be given the most perfect perfect gift from heaven, and I'll kill it. That's what we will do when we're left to our own devices. That's good preaching right there. That'll minister to you if you let it. But the story doesn't stop there. So we kill Jesus, and he's dead. Now, a lot of people, they wonder, like, was he really dead? Where did he go? Did he step out of the room? What happened? Here's what I know, is that he was in a body, and we killed it, and then we put that thing in a tomb. And now, you need to hear me. They wrapped him up. They entombed him, wrapped him up, seasoning the spices, however it is that they did that, to put his body on marinade, and they put him in the tomb and rolled a stone over it. He was dead. He's dead three days. Now, there's a lot of good stories out there, but now you and I, I'm willing to bet that nobody in this room that you've ever known anybody that's dead for three days and then got up and walked out on their own power. God didn't come down with a Holy Ghost defibrillator and pow as if he wasn't already all the way totally dead. He was dead. Our King and Savior was dead. And you're saying, preacher, man, are you mocking the Lord? Oh, no, 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 no. I can talk about his death so casually because I know what happened on day three. I can't explain it to you. It is a mystery of who God is. It is a mystery of God's power. I believe it was an intimate secret between the father and his son. The son was laying dead in the tomb, and God comes down with all of his power and authority, and he flexes on sin and death, and he rolls a stone out of the way, and... Jesus wakes up out of the tomb and out he walks. 
So it was pretty scary Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Now, I don't, I don't know if it was like dawn on Sunday morning. I personally wonder if it wasn't about brunch time on Sunday. Here comes Jesus, alive and well. Oh, see, now that changes everything. Now, see, there's good knowledge, there's good revelation when we study Jesus, who he is, what he did, and then we understand that we killed him. That helps us understand the universe, helps us understand what God's up to. But see, when he got up out of the grave, that changes everything. That's a beacon flashing all through the universe saying, look at God's power. Look at what he can do. He can even overcome death. You can pour out all the death you want to on God, and it don't faze him, baby. We say, well, that's real good for him. What about me? Ha, <laughs> what about you? What about you? Now, I've just very briefly conveyed to you what Paul had conveyed to the Corinthians. Jesus is the Messiah, the sent one, Emmanuel, God with us. We killed him, but then God got him up. And Jesus, with his own words, says, And I have the keys to death, hell, and the grave. All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. The king is Jesus, and he is alive and well. He is a flesh human man, and he has holes in his hands and a hole in his side. That is the God of the universe this morning. And don't you ever forget it, because that is the most important thing. That is the cornerstone of our faith. And so I'm setting you up this morning, and you may not know it, but I'm setting you up. I'm leading you in to a Holy Ghost trap. All right, I'm going to stand up. See, I can't help but wonder sometimes if in church we fall into the patterns and we fall into our way of doing things and we get comfortable in church. We get comfortable with God. We get comfortable with singing the songs and we have our favorite verses that we read. The truth is we get comfortable with a little bit of God and a little bit or a lot of doing things our way, how we like, when we want. But now let me tell you something, friend. We are fakes and we are frauds, according to Paul, if we forget that we, okay, we killed him, but God got him up. God has power and authority over the greatest of our enemies, that being death. Let me tell you something. That means that whatever is going on in your life today, not yesterday, not tomorrow, whatever is going on in your life today, God has power and authority that he can touch on that thing and it will change. It doesn't matter what part of you may be dead. It doesn't matter what part of your life may be living in the shadows. God can touch it. He can look at it. He can breathe on it and he puts a light on it. He puts a life on it. He makes dead things come back to life. He makes things that are bent, broken, and twisted. He straightens them out, and he makes them better than they ever were before. God is taking you somewhere good, not because he's just a happy dandy boy skipping through the fields. It's because he is an authoritative king who he has power over all of your enemies, and he's looking at you saying, I'm going to take you somewhere good because I want to and I can.
and can't nobody stand in his way except for you. Nobody can stand in his way except for you. And so we can't forget that if we do all the things that we do and we enjoy all the beautiful things that we enjoy even here on this campus, but if we forget that what we're doing is we're serving, we're following, and we're submitting ourselves to a powerful, life-changing God who He works transformation in us, if we forget that, then we, according to Paul, are fakes and frauds and our faith counts for nothing. And then, not only are we fakes and frauds, if we don't believe that God got Jesus up out of the grave, then we're making Him a fake and a fraud. Now, there are some things that I may have some boldness about when I stand before God and He judges my life. The one thing I would not want to be accused of when I stand before him is him point his finger at me and said, you went to the services and you sang the songs and you memorized the scripture, but you never really let me do what I wanted to do. You didn't really believe that I got him up, and so you were a fake and a fraud, and you made me look like, look like one too. The enemy's best preaching material in the world are Christians who don't act and live like it. Y'all okay? Now see, I always give you the hard part first because you've got energy when I start. Give you the hard part, but just, (gasps) it's going to get better. Now I had never left you hanging where I sent you home on a down note. Today is not going to be that way either. You're going home on a high note, trust me. Because see, I'm setting you up this whole time. Okay? Now, we're talking about being unshakable in this sermon series. And my comrades have already said so much and done so much. But now here's something I want to say. Remember, hold it in your hand. God got him up out of the grave. So in the other hand, here's what we have to understand, is that the difficulties of life are going to happen. We will be shaken. We will be challenged. And so don't look at anybody around you. Just keep your eyes on me and everything will be fine in this next part. But you have messed up. You have messed up. I'm willing to bet that you have made a royal mess of your life more than once. I'm 35, and I've got a half a dozen times I messed up real bad under my belt. So some of you elder saints, y'all just rocking and rolling, baby. The shaking will come. And so anybody who lived through 2020 and 2021, you got shook a little bit. I'm looking to see if they people telling the truth. They some folk right in over here that they didn't get, they're saying they didn't get shook. You got shook in 2020. The shaking will come. So here's something that I want to say to us as a church is I think one of the things that we need to become more proficient at as the church is that we need to make room for people when the shaking happens. We need to make room for people for when the shaking happens because it's going to happen. What happens when my life becomes shaken? Uh, I become afraid. I don't know what I'm going to do. How am I going to get out of this? Where's the money going to come from? How's Billy going to get into college? 
How am I going to get baby shoes? What am I going to do to get my marriage back on track? What do I do when the person I wake up with, I look at them and maybe I don't love them anymore? What do I do when she looks at me and I know that she doesn't love me anymore? What do I do when I drug and fought my kids to church for 20 years and then they run off and never come back? And I know that they're living in sin that's bringing pain to their life. What do I do? What do I do when the bank calls in the mortgage? What do I do when we didn't hit our projection, our earnings projections? What do I do when I don't hit my sales numbers? The shaking's going to come. It's going to come. So we shouldn't look across the aisle at other saints when the shaking is happening in their life and they come in a little bit looking like this and we go over and say, you need to get the joy of the Lord, sister. What do we do? Is that the way? I don't know if Jesus did that. They're about to stone a woman for adultery. And Jesus didn't say, well, you need to get up from there, woman. No, he got down in the dirt with her. We need to make room. So there's a harvest coming to this house. I believe that. There's a harvest in this house, and there's a harvest outside the walls. Part of how we're going to bring in the harvest is when we make room for the mess. We make this, isn't a, this is not a museum. This is a sheep shed. It's a barn. It gets dirty. It gets messy. Now, if you didn't grow up on the farm, trust me, there's mess in the barn. we got to make room for people that their lives are being shaken. They're afraid. They're insecure. They're in pain. They're coping. They're grappling with addiction. You know, we preach things about people that have like anxiety and depression. We say, mm, the Lord, yeah. Believe me, I believe that. But I wonder how the people sitting on the seat knowing that they've got Prozac in their purse, I wonder how they feel when the preacher says, you need to just get over your depression knowing that I'm taking pills to try to keep myself so I can get up and go to work on Monday morning. There's room. There's room when the shaking comes. There's room when the shaking comes. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I'm going to turn this right here. Maybe Ozarka will send me a check. Now, I grew up in church. Now, you guys know I grew up in a traditional uh, Pentecostal tradition, and we were, man, Holy Ghost fire. We were righteous, and we was holy, holy. You ever seen people so holy they look mad all the time? That's why they're mad. They hadn't been to a a bowling alley or the movie theater, and they hadn't watched no Jean-Claude Van Damme whoop. That's why they're so mad. You ever notice like you couldn't watch Rambo and Jean-Claude Van Damme in the old days like beat up some bad guy? But now they could watch some days of our lives. And they're on there lying and cheating and fornicating just every day, all day long. While husband was down getting the check, she was at home. Little days of our lives. She hears the work truck pull up in the driveway. Boop, 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 boop. Change the channel to John Hagee. Acting like she's been in the glory all day. You a liar. A liar.
we believed in Holy Ghost power, and I've seen it. I've seen it. Holy Ghost power. But we fell into this idea that if you said the words to become saved, we baptized you, and then we got you filled with the Holy Ghost that, all right, you're good. Like you went down the assembly line, step one, step two, step three, boom, stamp of approval, preacher signs off on it. Yep, they spoke out loud. I heard it. They've got the Holy Ghost. They're set. Now, just go live your life, buddy. Everything's going to be all right. It's almost like we thought we could manufacture Christians. Now, I'm 35 and I'm young. I got much to learn. But here's one thing that I have learned. God doesn't manufacture anything. Name one thing that he's made two of just the same. I'll wait. Ain't never made nothing. Two of the same. Everything is unique. He puts his fingerprint on everything. Even look at the created world. No two trees are the same. No two blades of grass are the same. No two birds are the same. Everything is unique. Everything is created. Apply that same logic to us. So we're thinking about what do we do when the shaking comes. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Is that I've learned everybody's walk is different. The challenges that we face and the things we have to go through, they're all unique. And so what's happening when the shaking is coming, we look and we see somebody who they look down. They look sad. They're struggling. They're having a hard time. Mom and dad are not sitting as close together on the seat as they were two years ago. We see that. But what we have to learn to see is what God is doing in the middle of that shaking. And so here's what we have to understand is that when I see shaking, what's really happening is God is working in that person's life because you don't never arrive in serving Jesus. When you said you were going to follow Him and let Him be Lord of your life, you weren't signing up for a destination. You're signing up for a journey. And guess what? You never really reach the end. Ooh, that that hurt a few of you. (laughs) You never really arrive at the end. You never arrive. We're like pilgrims constantly following Him, constantly presenting ourselves before Him every day saying, God, what do you have for me today? What are you doing in me today? God, how are you trying to get into the middle of my marriage and my money? How are you trying to get into the middle of this relationship with my kids? Because God doesn't manufacture things. In fact, I think that He grows uh, saints. He grows us. Because uh, remember Jay preached earlier this year that God is like a gardener. The scripture says that the Father is the vine dresser. He's a gardener and He looks at us and He prunes us and He waters us and He'll let the sun get hot but then He gets the shade over us. Why? Because He's forming us into something that is organic and beautiful and unique and that's what our relationship with Him looks like. That's what we're supposed to be like to the world. The garden is on the inside of us and He's forming it. He also raises us up like a shepherd raises sheep. Psalm 103 says, I know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His and we are the sheep of His pasture. 
So he is the shepherd and he's, he's, he's moving us from green pastures and still waters. He's moving us from place to place saying, eat this grass, drink this water, rest in this shade. Why? Because he's forming each sheep, giving each sheep what they need. Don't you be looking over at the person down the aisle when their life's falling apart and yours just happens to be together this week saying, I wish that they would do a little better. Maybe we could get on with God. No, he's the shepherd and he's moving us. Us each where we need to go. I love this analogy. This is beautiful. He's a gardener. He's a shepherd. But Jeremiah says that you are the clay and I, I am the potter. And so God is looking at all of our lives, even when the shaking is coming. He doesn't back. He doesn't back up, pack up, or go home. He gets right down in the middle of it, like a potter with clay, saying, "Oh, that piece kind of flipped off a little bit right there." But guess what? I'm just going to keep letting you spin, and I'm going to keep working you, and I'm going to keep molding you. Because if you'll let me put my hands on you, I will form you into something that is perfect. So we need to make room. We need to make room in God's house for all of us to go through the shaking. We need to make room for people who that they're they're in pain and they're trying to figure out how's God going to do this. We have to make room. Does that feel okay? Look at your neighbor and tell them say make room. I can tell it's summertime, and y'all have been in the flesh hard all summer. You've been watching movies. I know some of y'all have binge-watched Outer Banks. That show came out on Friday, and I know some of y'all been sitting at home watching John B. and Sarah running around the coast trying to find pirate treasure. That's what some of y'all have been doing. See, I know... I know, I'm looking at some of you, and I know, I see it in your eyes. You've been binge-watching Outer Banks on Netflix. You ain't been in your Bible in ten whole days. So I can feel it when I tell you to look at your neighbor and say, Make room. Make room. You know, I feel it. I sensed it. All right, preacher man. I believe that God got him up. I need that resurrection power to work in me because I may be going through a shaking myself and I know he's doing it in other people. He's trying to shape us, mold us, form us. What do I do? Now, this is the point where most preaching stops and it's also the point where I used to get really frustrated listening to preaching. So we want to give you the concept but then we don't tell you nothing to do about it. I'm going to tell you something to do about it. See, I've been setting you up this whole time. Now, don't get too excited because you're not going to like what I say. I was trying to get you energetic before this moment because you're not going to like this. Are you ready? All right. Take a deep breath. I'm sorry about this. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, says this. Better to go to the house of mourning. Not mourning, son. Not that mourning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men. What's the end? Going to the house of feasting. 
and the living will take it to heart. Here's what the writer's saying. People who want to live will listen to what I'm saying. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. That's a great verse to read if you want to throw a wet blanket on a Holy Ghost party. What in the world are you saying, preacher man? Go into the house of mourning instead of the house of feasting? What in the world does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to explain it to you. Super easy. Let me first tell you about the house of feasting. I was but a wee lad in 2005. My high school career was coming to an end, and uh, I didn't do so well in school. I like to think this because I was like Einstein, and I was just bored with it all, and so I wanted to think big things, and I wasn't worried about trigonometry, and so I wasn't doing too well in school, and, uh, that, um, and just so they weren't paying me much attention. No one was trying to figure out what did I want to do with my life, because it's like, well, you know, if he stays out of jail, then we did all right. And so... Uh, everybody else, though, man, they had their life together, and man, some of my friends, they were getting looked at by college, like D1 schools, and, uh, you know, they were like the celebrities, you know, of high school, and I come from a small town, and so, you know, like, if one kid's getting looked at to play ball in Duke, it's like, he is God, basically, and so I was growing up in the senior year, and, you know, I wasn't really looking to go anywhere. No one was getting excited for my future. I wasn't nominated for any senior superlatives, particularly most successful or best looking. That wasn't on my, I just couldn't compete. And so, uh, man, everybody, we're just like, we're living in this, like everybody's dreams are about to come true. And I was feeling pretty low, and I was feeling pretty down. And now, see, um, a bunch of those people who they went on to do great things, they were pretty much heathens. And so they were excited about going to UGA or Duke or Carolina. Uh, but see, I knew about seeking God. And so um, I knew what to do to figure out my future. I knew that even though I wasn't fitting into a lot of the benchmarks that you want young men and women to fall into, I knew God still had something for me. Uh, and so I knew that if what I needed to do was like pray and seek the Lord and, and talk to people who were wiser than me to help pull it out of me and all those things, I knew that I needed to do that. But see, prom was coming. And so I don't know about you, but when I was 17, um, I liked girls. And so prom was a great place to go be with girls because they're all dolled up and, you know, dad's going to give you extra money to spend and I already had some of my own money, so we had a big old roll of money in my pocket. And now, now, ladies, be real still. I'm going to talk to the men for a minute. Men, you know as well as I do, you're sitting there real still and real quiet. But now, if I told you what you were going to do to have fun when you were a teenager, and I said, we're going to give you $1,000 cash in your pocket, and we're going to give you a brand-new Cadillac CTS-V to ride around, which if you don't know, that's like a four-door Corvette, super sexy. We're going to give you a Cadillac CTSV, and we're going to give you a good-looking date, and we're going to make you the driver not only for your date, but for three other girls going to ride in the car with you, and we're going to, you can go eat anywhere you want to. Fine dining. 
you know as well as I do, that's the best time that you'd had in your whole stinking life. Winning the championship didn't matter more than that. Getting good grades didn't matter more than that. That was the peak of your existence. You know it, and I know it. So I knew that I had some things I needed to do to get my life in order, but I didn't want to do it because I had senior prom coming. And so in late 2004, this song didn't take off because it came out too late in the year, and party songs always drop in the spring so that they catch in time for summer. And so this song came out late in the year because they're trying to push it, but it didn't catch until the spring of 2005. And so there were three guys wrote this song. It was a guy named Usher, a guy named Ludacris, and a guy named Little John. So some of my boomers may not know what I'm talking about here, but see, right around late 04, early 2005, there was this style of music taking off in Atlanta called crunk. And we was getting crunk. Now, I'm from the holler... And the banjo picking was getting a little old, y'all. You can only listen to so much Willie Nelson for the anointing just falls off of that. But now when you get that low 808 pumping from down in Atlanta and you get some Little John on it and some Luda on it and some Usher on it, we about to have a party. And so I'll never forget pulling into senior prom Cadillac. And you come through the door. Dun-dun, 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 dun Yeah! And what? My God, there are girls everywhere, tie feeling right. Woo! Oh, Lord. Woo! For just a few hours that night, little Jordan was in the house feasting. She was spitting game at me like she knowed me. That's the lyrics of the song. How do you not get excited about that? I was in the house of feasting, and that just, man, that was a crash course. I tried to keep that going for like three years. <laughs> it got harder and harder to keep the party going. See, I was preaching right there, and you missed it. When you go to the house of feasting, here's what you do. The shaking comes to your life. And you realize something ain't right. I need to do something. But rather than face that thing, I'm going to the house of feast and turn the music up real loud, get around the girls, and let's just party. Let's forget about my problems. Oh, see, I told you I was setting you up. I wonder how long some of us have been in the house of feasting, going from one... Now, hear what I'm saying. I don't mean an actual party. How long of us, how many of us have been going from party to party, thing to thing, relationship to relationship, um, tax income number to tax income number? You're just trying to make more money to keep the party going. Now, I know people that are in their 40s and their 50s, and they're still trying to keep a party going that they had going in college. Yeah, that's, yes. See, one sister right here telling the truth, she knew somebody else, not her, who's doing that. And you ain't laughing if it's you. Now, that's one kind of feasting that you all know about. You know about all that heathen, pagan feasting. But let me tell you about another kind of feasting. There's a kind of feasting that's religious feasting, and it's the worst. Oh, oh, it's the worst. 
See, over here is my house of feasting. So religious feasting looks like this. Some of you, you got out of the world, but you came over into the church, but brought the same mentality with you, trying to go from one hopped-up service, one good revelation, one-liner that you got on somebody else's Twitter that read somebody else's book, and you just regurgitating that thing, hacking it all to pieces, trying to walk around like you glow in the dark when you got the same problems that everybody else has got, ain't paid tithes in six months, walking around about how you blessed. You're in a religious house of feasting. How you doing, brother? Oh, I'll tell you, I am blessed and highly favored. I knew people that came into the old church and they were busted. Their marriage is falling apart. Their kids are running around like crazy and they ain't got no money in their pocket. And they come into the house of God. And here's the thing. Now hear what I'm saying really closely. It's not about what they were doing. It's about that they were faking it. Come into the house of God and get the Holy Ghost hopper going. Ho, ho. Holy Ghost. And i got to tell the whole story here. My daddy always said, if you see a turtle sitting on a fence post, you know that it didn't get there by itself. So those saints who they danced and looked silly and would run laps around the building, they did some crazy stuff. But a lot of it was real. The problem became when we started trying to manufacture a Holy Ghost experience, and we started using language and dancing and singing and lyrics, and we made it culture instead of following him and being inspired by it. We turned it into its own culture, and we use it as a coping mechanism so that I can go to church and get my fix and then just keep living my life how I've been living it. But nothing really changes. Remember, Paul said, if you go around talking about God, but you don't live out the resurrection, you're a fake. So there's two kinds of feasting. I've done both. <laughs> the partying feasting is far better, trust me. Religious feasting, that's for the birds. But then there's this other place we go to called the house of mourning. And it says that if we go there, we will live. Because by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. What does that mean? When I go to the house of mourning, and I get really honest with myself, and I get really honest with my life, then here's what's going to happen. I'm going to have those emotions that may come at some point. But that is a place where I can get honest. And that is, so listen to me so carefully right here. Honesty is so powerful because God deals in truth. He's not going to prop you up so that you can keep your prideful driven projections going. What does that mean? You can keep up the front. Jesus didn't die so we could stay in our self-delusion. Jesus came so we could face and deal with the real things that are going on in our life. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get honest about some of the things that are going on in my life, I don't always feel like running three laps around the building. I feel like falling on my face and weeping. 
Now I'm talking to some real saints. Now I'm talking to some people who they really know what's going on here. So here's some things that are important. I love that the verse says this, by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. Why? I think most of you and myself, we are carrying around things that weigh us down, our fears, our insecurities, our dysfunction. We are toting that stuff around, putting on a smile for the world. And God's saying, if you'll just let yourself feel the pain of where you are, you get into truth, and that is the place where I can touch on it. Remember, we're talking about resurrection. You want to know who else did that? We could go all through the Old Testament, but one person who comes to mind is the prodigal son, that when he found himself in the pig pen, finally, finally, he looked around and he said, it's better to be a servant at my father's house than to stay in this pig pen. The house of mourning is when you look around and you say, I would rather grovel on my face in God's altar before him than I would to go out them doors one more time and keep trying to fake to the whole world that I'm happy and I'm fulfilled when in fact I am not. Do you want to know who else went to the house of mourning? Jesus I believe the Garden of Gethsemane was his house of mourning. Some people debate when Jesus fully understood that he was going to be physically crucified. I believe that you can debate that all day, but I know this, that in the garden there was no doubt left. He knew they're coming to kill me. And so what is the imagery that we have? I could just see him in the garden. I've been there. I could just see him in that garden holding on to a stone that you sit on in a garden. I could just see him holding on to that, sweating blood. The feeling, the pressure, and the weight of our sin and our dysfunction, that he was feeling the pressure of our screw-ups and our mistakes. All of that is bearing down on him. And he says this, Father, if there is any way to let this cup pass from me, that's what I want to do. Now, you may look at your house of mourning and you look through the door and you see all the stuff that you're going to have to face and you say, I don't know that I want to go in there. But Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Oh, when he said those sweet words, he's changing the course of history. I don't have the right to ask you to go to the house of mourning but he does. And I can't help but wonder, if we say we follow him and we want to live in a constant party where we never have to face pain and difficulty, I wonder what version of the Bible we're reading. If he faced it, you can sure bet that we're going to. Does that feel okay? So, We want to make room for people that need to come to the altar and grab hold of the old timers would say, grab hold of the horns of the altar and just let it fly. Tears and snot and hollering. People sitting down in their seat, holding their heads, saying, God, I'm going to the house of mourning. Why did Jesus go? Because he trusted God enough 
that even when I can't see how you're going to get me through this, they're going to put me in the ground. Don't you know, God, what they're going to do to me? But nevertheless, I trust you and I trust your will. I trust the scriptures that have said all through history, God is up to something. He's taking us somewhere. He's taking us somewhere good. Holding on to that thing saying, God, I know you want to take me somewhere good. I know you want to put my life back together, my marriage back together, my relationship with my kids back together. I don't know how, but I know that you want to do it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So when you go to the party, you get issued a party kit. When you go to the house of mourning and you face all that pain, you want to know what it will lead you to? Let me tell you why this is where you want to find yourself. Because this is a place that even when we are in pain, you can forgive them that hurt you. And you can repent for the hurting that you've been doing. Because there's power in this right here. This is honesty. This is truth. There's no delusion here. You don't go to a cross if you're full of pride. But someone who's humble and full of obedience will go to a cross. So when you go to the house of mourning, this is what you'll find in the back of the room. And you can get down in front of it and you can start pouring out through your countenance, through your words and your expressions. You can start pouring out all that stuff that you've been carrying around. And when you make a choice, a choice to forgive, when you make a choice to repent, guess what? Just like Jesus when he's hanging on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. When he's right in the middle of his house of mourning and his lifeblood is dripping its final drops onto that sandy Israeli soil, knowing that I've just been murdered and I have minutes left, He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I believe that when he made those holy decisions to obey and follow the Lord, and when he didn't hold offense in his heart for the way that he was being treated, that's what gave him access to what happened three days later. What in the world does that have to do with me and you? We follow Jesus. We do what He did. He gives us grace to make the same decisions that He had to make. And you're sitting there listening to me saying, You don't have the right to tell me to forgive them for what they did to me. Preacher, man, you don't know what I've been out doing. I don't, and I don't need to, but He does. He has the right to ask. And when you say yes to what he said yes to, you get the power that he got. So you're looking at your life and you're looking at your marriage and all the things that are wrong saying, how am I going to get out of this? Go to the house of mourning. Be truthful about what's really going on, about what you've been doing. 
and what you've been saying. Be truthful. Look at this cross and say, God, only you can forgive me for some of the stuff I've done. God, only you can fix it. Only you can put it back together. God, I am just a man. You are God and I am not. When you find yourself in that place, there may be some tears. There may be some pain. There may be some quiet. You may find yourself speechless. But let me tell you what happens next. The same power that got Jesus out of the grave on day three, that same power comes to work in your life. It comes to work on the inside of you. It comes down and it touches the things that we have messed up. And God says, boom, resurrection power. Boom, resurrection power. You say, is it that easy? You bet it's that easy, baby, because Jesus has already gone and done all the hard work. He won the victory for us. All we have to do is determine in our heart to follow in His footsteps. You got into the position that you're in because of the decisions that you made. Bishop used to always teach us, your life as it sits right here today is because of the decisions that you have made. Well, guess what? If you can decide your way into a problem, you can decide your way out. It don't make sense. It don't make sense how God got him up on day three. Write me a math formula for it. I can't. God did it with His supernatural power. What I want for you this morning is to have access to that same supernatural power that got Jesus up out of the ground. If you want it to, stand on your feet. psalm says that he catches my tears in a bottle now does that mean that when you get to heaven there's going to be a little bottle with your name on it and it's got some liquid in it uh, no I don't think so so here's what the scripture's saying there is not one ounce of pain that you have ever felt that God has not paid attention to and taken note of the psalmist is trying to tell us that our pain is sacred to God. What does something mean when it's sacred? Something sacred is something He lets you borrow, but He always gets the final say in how it turns out. God, if you pour your pain out to Him, becomes sacred, and He says, I see your pain, and I'll take it. And if you'll let me, I will have the final say in how things turn out in that situation.